Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, I'm going to read Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength the King rejoices, and in your salvation how great He exalts. You have given Him His heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of His lips. For you meet Him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon His head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved." Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, good morning, church. For those who don't know me, my name's uh, Vin. I have the honor and privilege of uh, starting our new series. So if you weren't here last week, we concluded in Romans. Pastor Rob did an amazing job in that conclusion. Uh, If you haven't heard the sermon, please go back. I would deeply encourage you to do that. But we're now in the Psalms. Um, Something quite beautiful that we as a team are excited and celebrate that we get to go through the Psalms together throughout this summer. So that's why we've titled it Songs for Life. For all seasons of life, there is a song. Um, For those who don't know, so uh, um, two things. For the men's ministry, Please sign up for the, uh, there's a men's barbecue. Yes, if you're asking the question, am I going to serve more meat? Absolutely. (laughs) So we're doing a Brazilian barbecue style. So sign up July 8th, go online to do that. The second thing you need to know is this, is that my mother from Australia is here in the room. (laughs) So you know what that means? I'm on my best behavior. (laughs) But no promises. So in Psalm 21, we're going to continue in worship, so please keep it open, and I'm going to show you why. We're going to go, obviously, as best as we can, verse by verse. So I've titled this sermon, Psalm 21, as God's victory is our joy, okay? God's victory is our joy. But let me start off by asking you a question. Have you ever attended elementary school, school kids, like school sports day, you know? Um, you know, the day when those school kids from uh, elementary school, the day consists of kids playing fun games, they play relay races, and somehow everyone turns out to be a winner. No one's a loser. But every now and then, you have a parent on the sidelines screaming at the top of their lungs, parents screaming things like to their child, run faster, what are you doing? Beat that kid. Now, just to clarify, (laughs) these are parents that just want their kids to win. There is no physical violence involved when we say stuff like, beat that kid. 
Look, it's hard to admit, but I'm one of those parents. I'm one of those parents that scream from the sidelines. It's not my greatest achievement, but it's an achievement. My wonderful wife, Laura, in the moments when I'm screaming my heart out for my children to win, even though supposedly they're all winners, she'll grab my arm signaling and pull me down like as in, out of embarrassment, like, sit down. <laughs> I love celebrating those times when my children are winners. But would we not all agree that there are better victories worth celebrating? To cheer on, to scream? If you look on the screen, this is worth celebrating. When people at the end of World War II, that was the big catchphrase, victory. Many countries celebrated together the victory of allied forces. Many celebrated that soldiers defeated the enemy. And all celebrated that all had received freedom. That's worth celebrating. So in Psalm 21, we will look into why the people celebrated the victory of their God with the help of their earthly king. So before we get into Psalm 21, I want to, uh, I want to rem- give us sort of a short sort of synopsis, reminder of what, what the Psalms are and how they came to be. In Hebrew, it is best translated, the word Psalms is best translated really as the book of praise. Okay? There are seven out of all the Psalms, 150 chapters, there are seven different authors. The Psalms are actually broken up really into five parts. Okay, five parts, sort of resembling the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Martin Luther and the other reformers believed wholeheartedly in two things, okay? Two things when the Reformation happened. The first was that every person needed uh, a version of their Bible in their own language, okay? That was the first thing. The second thing the reformers and Martin Luther believed was that every person needed a hymnal. They needed a book of praise. The book of Psalms is put together after, after the exile, after Israel is exiled out of Egypt. So it really spans, it really starts at about 500 B.C., all the way, it goes all the way until the time of Jesus, close to the time of Jesus, so really, the Psalms spend, span about a thousand years. This book of praise has a song. If it's gone that long, there's a song for every season of life, from highs and lows to joys to sorrows, there is a song for life. So there are three points I want to make from Psalm 21, and they are our celebration, their sensation, his exaltation. So let me repeat that. Our celebration, their cessation, and his exaltation. So the Psalms are usually broken up into what we call stanzas. Okay, so three sort of sections or paragraphs, but three stanzas. Uh, Psalm 21 is broken up to three, and they, they go from verses 1 to 7, 8 to 12, and then finally just thir- verse 13 on its own. So let's go to my first point, our celebration. So the first stanza, so that's verses 1 to 7, uh, they seem, it seems to indicate that the people, the congregation, and those who are like subject to the king, the earthly king, are celebrating a major victory, the victory that the king and his people have been asking for. 
Because you see, Psalm, Psalm 21 is actually an outcome and an outflow and an answer to the prayer from Psalm 20. Okay, so Psalm 20 is a prayer of deliverance, like God, oh, save us. And then Psalm 21 is an answer to that prayer. So there's companions. Psalm 20, Psalm 21 are companions. They sort of work together. Because look at how Psalm 20 concludes in verse 9. It says, O Lord, save the king. May he answer, answer us when we call. So here we have the people pray to Yahweh, the Lord, on behalf of the king and just for that nation, and they're asking for the king's salvation, for the king's victory, and then there's a waiting. So the end of verse 9 is a waiting for Yahweh to reply. God, we're waiting for you as we've made this prayer. As soon as Psalm 21 opens, it starts off in verse 1 as an answer to that prayer, which means that there is a reason for the people to celebrate, for their celebration. See, the people are celebrating because God has given the king the victory. God has delivered the king from his enemies. Think about it this way. You know, there are times when my wife, Laura, will ask me, hey, can you, can you open up that new jar of pickles in the fridge? So I'll go to the fridge, I'll open it, I'll grab the jar of pickles, and for some reason it's on really tight and I can't open it. So what I do is I grab a tea towel to give me more grip to try and open it, and I grab it, and I twist it, and it still doesn't open. Now, usually the trick that my wife told me is, you know, you've got to get something like a kitchen tool or a hammer and just sort of lightly tap it on the side to sort of loosen the lid. And after I do this, it still doesn't open. So I tell Laura, Laura, I give up. Life is just not worth it. And so what she does is, she just looks at me, and then she'll grab the jar, and then she'll just pop it open. <laughs> what I do is I have to celebrate her and thank her for opening the jar, but in the back of my mind I'm thinking, I loosened it for her. <laughs> you see, the king and his people are celebrating because God has shown his strength through his salvation. God has shown his strength because the people know that it was God's strength that saved the king and the king's people. And they know this through any circumstance, like a tugboat that can pull a big cruise ship to safety. You see, the king's salvation is also the people's salvation. It is not the fact, just the fact that since the king won the battle with the enemies that now they're safe. No, you can't think of it this way. What you have to think of is like this. Israel knew, the king knew, that even if they defeated this enemy, there'll be another enemy waiting around the corner to devour them. The king and the king's people, their salvation comes from the fact that Yahweh, the Lord, answered the prayer. Brothers and sisters, we have that same assurance we might not always love when God answers because he seems to take too long. Or we might not always love how he answers because he doesn't always answer with a yes. But know that he will answer each and every prayer. So we can bring our praise. We can bring our requests to the Lord and celebrate that he hears and that he answers. You see, because previously the people prayed in Psalm 20, verse 4, 
May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your plans. Okay, we're going to try something new. You're going to see this on the screen. You're going to see Psalm 21 on the screen. And look how he answers that prayer in Psalm 21, verse 2. He actually says, you have given him his heart's desire. Right there. That's an answer to Psalm 20, verse 4. I think one of the questions we need to then ask is this, from that part. What did the king's heart desire? You see, the word desire in Hebrew is the same word used in the Ten Commandments. In particular, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. To be exact, that, that commandment in Exodus 20, verse 17 is about coveting. The idea here is this. Here's the idea with the word, with heart's desire. The idea is that the king, first of all, is poor in strength. He cannot, he cannot save himself. And the king has something stronger than a desire. For the king has a need, not just a desire, he has a need. In the king's weakness and in his need, he asks the Lord for divine strength. That's something to really think about. Look, the simple answer is this. Because the heart's, the king's desire was whatever, the, whatever God's desire was. The king's heart desire was whatever God's heart desire was. So my question now is to the psalmist is this, if this is the case, if all I need to know as a human and you and me as brothers and sisters, all we need to know is God's desire and then we get our desire, and my question then is, is it all that simple? All we have to do is know God's heart's desire and then he will not withhold any request that comes from my lips. Have you ever been to the clothing store in Metro Town called Aritzia? Sadly, I have. (laughs) But I'm only there because, you know, Laura might like to browse but the kids love going there. Because if you haven't been in the one in Metrotown, Aritzia, Metrotown, what's awesome about it is there's this big arcade machine in the middle. And the kids just go in there and they just go to town with playing this game. But as they're playing, I sort of, when, you know, the more times you walk, walk into that store, Aritzia, it becomes clearer of the customer that they're looking for. They want someone young and hip, everything I think I am not. But the more time you spend in the store looking around, looking at the clothes they sell, looking at the customers that come in and the advertising that I have, this is what my conclusion is, for those who know. Super puff, I am not. Like, it, it, there's a different demographic that they want. See, the, the point is this, brothers and sisters, I encourage you. I encourage you that the more, more time that you spend with Jesus, the more time you spend in his word, the clearer it will be for you to know his heart's desire. Don't just make it up on your own. You go right here. So you should celebrate with that we have the freedom. We, his people, have the freedom to spend time with Jesus and that Jesus, by his grace, reveals himself through his word. Jesus could have left us 
to our own devices, like figure it out on your own. But by his grace, he chose to reveal his heart's desire for you and I through his word. You see, right at the end of Psalm 2, Psalm 21 verse 2, we see this word. It's this word right here, and the word is sailor. It's a wonderful word. The word sailor actually occurs 71 times in the whole book of Psalms. It only occurs in total 74 times in the entire Bible. So out of the 74 times, 71 times it occurs in the book of Psalms, which means I think it's of great importance. We're not actually really sure what the word means. Most scholars, scholars are just guys with big fat heads. Um, scholars agree that the word sort of refers to silence. This idea of potentially to, to pause. To pause and to reflect on what was just said and the things going to be said. Every time you see the word selah, you should reflect on what was said and sung. Pause, take your time. Don't just rush through. See, Psalm, then as we continue to reflect, in Psalm 21, verse 3, you can see a very interesting thing here. One of the words I think is important is the word right here. Right in the middle. You, that is God, made him the earthly king. It's beautiful. It's beautiful for us to think through. God does not need to meet the king. He doesn't. But out of God's grace and mercy, he does that. He comes to the king. After a prayer request from the king and the king's people, it is the Lord that answers and delivers. If anybody were to go to somebody then it should be the king and the king's people that go to the Lord. This would be like Queen Elizabeth II coming to my basement suite to visit me. In normal circumstances, only those who are invited get to see the queen. But this king we call Jesus comes to our basement suite, and not only that, he actually shares a meal with us. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as king... First of all, you're welcome here. We are so thankful that you're here with us, that you've chosen to be here with us. Can I encourage you about something? Can I encourage you to ask Jesus to meet you where you are at? He will. You know why? Because we know that's his heart's desire. If things are going perfectly well for you, there's nothing wrong in your life, everything is absolutely perfect, he'll meet you there. If everything's sort of so-so, okay in the middle, he'll meet you there. If things are an absolute gong show, he'll meet you there. No matter where you find yourself, ask, and he'll meet you there. See, according to Psalm 21, verse 3, God meets the king with what? With rich blessings. Now, it could mean, rich blessings could mean gold and material things, but you have to look at, look at this in the context of the passage, and the context of the passage is victory over a war. So I believe the king is referring to the rich blessing of victory. 
Look, whether King David wrote Psalm 21 or not, we, what we know for sure is that Psalm 20 sort of involves all of this. Psalm, 20, Psalm 21, as I've said before, involves sort of King David. It encompasses him. Remember that King David had been a fugitive. He'd been on the run for about 15 years. Even though King David was promised the throne to be king, he was actually on the run with people who knew him and loved him. Only now, whatever that timeline is, only now is he tasting sweet victory over his enemies. This should actually remind us and encourage us of God's timing, that it's always perfect. His timing doesn't need to make sense to you and I, but it's always perfect. I am more than sure that King David, like us, he wanted the victory sooner rather than later, but God gave him the victory exactly at the right time. Think about it this way. Have you ever had those moments about, with old clothes, especially with an old pair of jeans? You were going through your clothing and you found an old pair of jeans you haven't worn in like seven years, and you beg and on your knees you plead God, please let these jeans fit me because we've put on a few. And so you finally put on the jeans, it comes out of the dryer or whatever it is, you put on the jeans and wow, it's a miracle, it fits. And then you put your hands in your pocket and you know what happens? You find $5 and it's perfect. You know why? Because you've been craving for some Tim Hortons Timbits, otherwise known as donut holes. But it's all this perfect timing that God does. So the king and the king's people know that they can celebrate God's perfect timing in the victory, but so should we. Psalm 21 um, verse four has one major idea that's worth exploring. At first glance, it looks like the king is asking for life and that, the, and that God answers with a resounding yes. You want life? I'll give you life. And it goes beyond the ask. God goes beyond the ask and then says, I'll give you life and I'll give it to you forevermore. But hold on. It seems like you're talking about eternal life. But if King David asked for life and you gave him more than just life, but you gave him eternal life, then why isn't King David still with us? Shouldn't he still be alive? If you go back to Psalm 21, verse 1, the word king here, okay, the word king here, in the Talmud, so the Talmud was the, the Jewish rabbi's sort of, it's a book uh, where they debate and have writings on the Torah, okay? So the Talmud is a, is a book on writing about the five books of the Bible. In the Talmud, the word king is, is Melech, Mishiach, which translates to King Messiah. But back, the reason why it only uses the term king was back in 1040 AD, a Jewish rabbi known as Rashi taught the Jews that they should no longer use the word king in Psalm 21 verse 1, as referring to, as translated as King Messiah, due to the fact that Christians would use this to their advantage. 
The word was changed to just mean king and only refers to King David. But if it means what it really means, which is King Messiah, then verse 4 is interesting. Because the beauty of the gospel is that all people are asking and wanting salvation. Not just from circumstance, but for more of life. Think about it. Christians and non-Christians alike will ask the same questions, which is, is this all life has to offer? We ask that because we all want something more. And Psalm 21 verse 4 gives us an answer. Jesus offers his life to give us life, not a temporary life, but a life eternal. You see, most parents, most parents I know would give up their own lives for their children. That they make daily the sacrifices necessary for their children to have a better life than them. But, humanly speaking, it's still not enough. It's still not enough because only Jesus can give your children eternal life. Not even you can. To my brothers and my sisters, celebrate that Jesus has given us his life to give us life. In Psalm 21, verses 6 to 7, they sort of work together. They go hand in hand, okay? 6 and 7 go really hand in hand. So not only does God meet and then offer king life and eternal salvation, but God also offers the king, if you look, to dwell with him forever. This is important. If you look there in verse 6, he's actually offering the king his presence, his actual presence. This is very important. For the king to dwell with him forever. Look, I've never met a taxidermist in my life, but if you know one, could you introduce me? I have so many questions about taxidermy. Uh, taxidermy, uh, if you don't know, they take stuff, dead animals and stuff them. I have so many questions, and one of those questions is, could you stuff me? <laughs> Why? Because I just want to be with my wife forever. So lay in the bed, dead me, stuffed, so my wife can look over and see me and not be freaked out. But I know of people who have, you know, taken their loved pets and get, have them serviced by a taxidermist. You know, people do this. What, you know, why do people do this? People do this because they want the memory of this pet to stay alive, right? The memory to stay alive or to feel like their loved pets have truly not left them. But we are moving now, because it's been done already, but we're moving now to cloning of the pet that you most love. But can I remind us that whether it be the best taxidermist or the best clone, it still doesn't come close, not even close, to be alive and well and talking and breathing and walking and singing and sharing meals with Jesus. Doesn't even come close. Like that game that we all play. You know that game we all play where we ask the question, oh, if you could invite anyone to dinner, dead or alive, who would you invite? That game. We mostly pick people who are dead. But according to the game, you can only invite three people. The, great, the, the game is great. You know why? Because you get to use your imagination. And the conversation is great. But remember that those people are still dead. And they will remain dead unless they know Jesus. The reality of actually being with Jesus, that's something worth celebrating. And that's 
what the king celebrates to be in his presence. The king knows that he's receiving joy. All because he's in the presence of his savior, the one who saved him to, from this, giving him this victory. The psalmist then informs us, okay, in verse 6, now that you have his presence, verse 7 is, an actual, is the actual outcome, the natural outflow of verse 6. What is the first natural outcome of verse, from verse 6 to verse 7? The first is this, is the word trust, right there. For the king trusts in the Lord. Now that you've given, my, now you've given me your presence, I will trust you. Here's what's happening. The word trust in, um, in Hebrew is botah. So basically, B-O-T-H. And basically, it means, it, it, it basically means to feel safe, to be confident. But the idea is also that this is a renewed constancy. You don't just get this trust once, but because you're with your Savior, you're always going to keep trusting. Because why? Because you're in His presence. Like a shy child that feels most safe holding onto the parent's leg when there are strangers around. The second is the word steadfast love. As a natural result of being in his presence. The word steadfast love in Hebrew is the word, I'll write over here, I don't know what here, is hesed. The word hesed means eternal, unchanging, this unfailing love. Can you imagine what it's like to have God's love for the king and for the king's people to be eternal, unchanging, unfailing? As great as a mother's love is for her children, it does not come close to the love of God. That thought leaves the king completely overwhelmed and deeply thankful. This is a thought that should then cause us also to celebrate. This now leads me to my second point. My second point is their cessation. The word cessation means the process of ending or being brought to an end. Okay, so the question then is, what is being brought to an end? So from verses 8 to 12, it could be that the kids, are the king's people are speaking here. But the main focus here is not that the, the getting rid of the king's enemies and the enemies of God's people, okay, that's not the main focus. The main focus in verses 8 to 12 is God himself getting rid of his enemies, whether it be earthly or spiritual. God has proven his strength and proven that his strength is more than enough. Um, Psalm 21 verse 11 actually tells you who these people are. These are people who uh, plan evil and devise mischief. Those are the people that God is going after. These are the people who are what we call intentional enemies of God. The people who say, God, not your will, but my will be done. People who say stuff like, God, I'm going to live my life my way, and you can't stop me. So why does Psalm now, my question is this, if that's the case, if that's a simple scenario, that people get to live whatever the way they want, why does Psalm 21 verses 8 to 10 use such vivid 
um, Im imagery. Look at the wording that it uses. It uses words like enemies, hate, blazing oven, wrath, consume, destroy. I believe that the imagery here is pointing to the fact that God's enemies, first of all, cannot stand against him. God's enemies now and God's enemies to come do not have the same strength as the Lord and that their time on earth will cease, will come to an end. Um, I don't know if you're anything like me, I don't like scary movies, but I'm brave enough to hide behind my wife when we watch those scary movies. I'm smart, it's just, it's just intelligence. When you see danger come your way, you put the loved one in front of you. But my curiosity, for those who know me, I, have a very, I naturally have a very curious mind. My curiosity always gets the better of me, and that means I, I, I cannot look away. Or if I do look away, I tap Laura on the shoulder and say, tell me what's happening. But why is that in every scary movie, when you think the bad guy is dead, right at the end, he jumps up, and he's alive. Like, what? I thought he got destroyed by a atomic bomb and he's still alive? What's happening here is God wants to make it very clear. The psalmist wants to make it very clear. There is no second chance. There is no last ditch effort for the enemy to come. They're done. But still, my question is, but aren't the terms like blazing oven, wrath, consume, destroy, God, isn't it a bit over the top? It's pretty harsh. Look, I will admit, from my personal point of view, this does sound harsh. But my point of view, from what I know about myself, I'm not completely that innocent. You see, think about it this way. With my personal enemies, with the people who I do not like in my life, I continue to despise them. I continue to not like them. I don't want to be near them. I wish and hope that they will all go away just to make my life a little bit easier. There are moments, even in my life, that I might talk behind their backs to other people so that other people would know how much I don't like them and then they would see what I see so they won't like them either. When I think deeply about this, I believe that I've convinced myself somehow that I'm better than my enemies. But the truth is, I'm not. I'm actually more like them than I want to admit. And that the wrath that my enemies might and will and should receive, yeah, that seems harsh. But when I look at my wrath, it doesn't seem that harsh. When I look at my faults and failures, it doesn't seem that way. When God looks upon us and sees the way we treat each other, but more importantly, how we treat him, then God should be angry. If God did not get angry when he looks upon the world and sees the sins we commit to him, towards him, and the sins we commit towards each other, and when he looks out into the world and he sees the, all the injustices of the world, if God did not get angry, there's something wrong with him. See, in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, let me read it for us. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Church, that's the good news. That's the good news of Jesus, that Jesus himself makes a way for his enemies. Don't just focus on the harsh language. You've got to focus on that Jesus takes on the punishment for the sins and injustices and his, that his enemies commit against him. That Jesus makes a way for his enemies to become his friends. That's the focus. You know, there's been times with my kids when I've, when I've been really upset with them and I send them to their room. And after sending them to their room, giving them some space to think, giving me some space to think, I eventually walk in the room. And I sit down with them, and I tell them actually why I was upset. And that why, as a parent, I had a right to be upset. But in the midst of my anger, I remind them that I deeply love them at the same time. They nod their heads, signaling to me that they understand, and we hug. Look, this is how I've known Jesus. I've known him as an enemy because I wanted to live life my way. But now I know him as Jesus, my father and my friend. And so can you. This now leads me to my last point, which is his exaltation. Psalm 21, verses 13, the very last verse, it ends the same way it starts. If you go back to verse 1, it really starts with what? His exaltation. So you've got the rejoice and the exalts. Then when you get to verse 13, you've got what? The very first thing, be exalted, O Lord. It starts with exaltation and it ends with exaltation. If you look at then verse 13 once again, you see the word we will, the congregation, the king, everybody now. We will sing. The last verse is actually a response to everything that's happened in the psalm. That's why they save it to the end in this particular way. It's a response of what? If you go back to all these things, it's a response to his strength, his salvation, that he's given, that you meet us, that you set that you bestow, wherever that is, I can't find it now, you bestow it somewhere. There it is. And then you make, and your steadfast love is right there again. And how does it respond? So, because they know that you will, you will, you will, you will. Four times that occurs. They already know 
God's going to deliver in, in not just this victory, but the victory is come from his salvation, from his strength, from his goodness. They know that's why they exalt and praise him. C.S. Lewis, a former Oxford professor, had a, had a few thoughts on praise. In particular, with the Psalms. Why? Because C.S. Lewis struggled. He struggled with the idea of why does God keep needing praise? Why? And so C.S. Lewis compiles a lot of his thoughts on the book, in his book, Reflections on Psalms. And he says, he says one of these many things that he says in his wonderful book, but I'll read a couple of things for us. He says it's about praise to God. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, uh, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not only merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that, that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. So why do the king and the king's people exalt and praise their God? Think of it this way. If you've ever been to a service here at Willingdon Church, especially on Easter and Easter services or a Christmas service, you're going to see a big orchestra that's here. And they come and they perform. If you get here early enough, before the service begins, you will hear the orchestra start to tune up. You're going to hear people sort of blow their trumpet, saxophone, whatever it is to warm up, but you also hear the violinists start to pluck their strings as they prepare for what? For the real performance. As C.S. Lewis puts it, our earthly worship is merely tuning our instruments. But the tuning involves, for him, here's his struggle. He's saying he felt like the tuning was more duty rather than delight. Felt like work sometimes. But he concludes by saying at the end of the day, that duty exists for the delight. Our exaltation and praise of Jesus today is, is just a small glimpse into the worship of what worship will be like in heaven, in his presence. Let me conclude with this. You know, when uh, I was a parent for the first time, especially uh, with when we brought, uh, when I finally got to see Grace, our newborn baby, the most nerve-wracking time was driving and most parents would know this, but driving a baby, newborn baby home for the first time is the most nerve-wracking thing you have to work through. It's hard. For those who have experienced it, no matter the time, the weather, what it is, you drive what? Extra slow. You obey every light like you've never obeyed them before. You obey every speed. You know what I mean? 60, I'll go six. Every stop sign, you stop. You stop, it's supposed to be about three to five seconds, I think. I don't know, I just go straight through. But, um, <laughs> but you stop for like 15 seconds just, to, just in case. And you think 
Everyone is crazy. They're driving way too fast. But they're driving the speed limit. And finally, you get home safe and sound. You're home safe. My question to you is then, who do you thank? Was it your driving? Was it the traffic lights? Was it the stop sign? Was it the baby seat? Was it the seat belt? Was it the car with the airbags and the ABS? Or was it because of everyone else? No, 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 no. The psalmist knew that when you come to the psalm, at the end of the psalm 21, the psalmist knew that the king and the king's people look at the victory and their continued security and safety in its entirety as a big picture. When they look at the big picture, you know who they thank? They thank God. No one else. So church, we together should thank God because he has already won the battle over sin and death. And in his victory, we remain secure. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we deeply thank you that you have achieved and you have conquered death and sin by your death on a cross and by your resurrection. For those who don't know that, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you let them know? And for us, Lord God, we continue to praise you and we look forward to the consummation of our praise that when you come back to claim what is yours, your people, oh, that day we look forward to being in your presence forever. That will complete our praise. So Jesus, we praise you for your victory and for the victories to come. We look forward to tasting and seeing how good it will be. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, there'll be some questions, uh, reflection questions up there. And before that happens, you know, uh, elders, pastors will be here and life group leaders will be in the front and at the back, up the top as well, to pray, to pray with you and for you. If, if something has resonated with you, would you do that? Thank you.